Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey there, everybody. This is Zach Albetta, and welcome to another episode of Working Drummer Podcast. My conversation today is with Andy Sinisi, a well-established L.A. drummer who worked his way into multiple scenes over his 10 years there. From gigs with Afro-Cuban bands to jazz and fusion projects to his current tenure with Missing Persons, Andy has been able to resist the pigeonholing that so frequently happens to L.A. musicians either by choice or by force and is all about getting out there and playing, whether it's a national tour or a weekly steady at a little hole in the wall in Santa Monica. We're always trying to grow our audience here at Working Drummer, and you can help us in that regard. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag Working Drummer, and by all means, send your friends a text or an email with a link to our homepage, workingdrummer.net, or just use your words, as they say, and tell someone about us. We had a good steady increase in listenership in 2016, so thank you for that, and we look forward to even more this year. We all love vintage gear, and I bet you know someone that owns an old Les Paul or maybe a 56 Fender Strat that never leaves the home, and the question is, why do we love this gear? It looks cool, it gives you that warm, handcrafted tone, and often brings a unique vibe to the music. Of course, it has its limitations, and if we're talking drums, we run into problems like its fragility, limited tuning... So where am I going with this? Well, once again, I went back out to KHS America in Mount Juliet, Tennessee to spend some time with some vintage gear. I'm talking about the Sonar Vintage Series Kit. I had seen and heard these at Summer NAM, but now I had a little one-on-one with these beautiful drums. Some specs you should know that make these drums uh, a modern vintage kit. The shells are that hand-selected premium German beach shell with rounded bearing edges. Keep in mind, This comes from the same forest of beechwood trees that were used in the manufacturing of sonar drums from the 1960s. The recreated teardrop lugs are a big deal. They look and feel just like the original, but now it has sonar's exclusive tune safe system. In other words, they stay in tune. There are many beautiful finishes you can choose from, like the Vintage Pearl and my favorite, the Red Oyster. It looks, sounds, and feels like a vintage kit, but maintains the quality and reliability of a modern kit. You could really call this a modern vintage kit. So go to us.sonar.com to learn more about the vintage series and find a dealer near you. We also want to let you know about next week's episode, which is another roundtable discussion led by Matthew Krauss, and we're calling this one The Black Drummers of Nashville. Keo Stroud, Hubert Payne, Marcus Finney, Derek Phillips, and Jeremy Robertson talk with Matt about their experiences as black musicians on the Nashville scene and playing with country artists that have almost exclusively white audiences. We're looking forward to presenting this uh, really interesting and enlightening conversation, and we hope you'll catch it. But right now, let's hear from my friend Andy Sinisi. We covered a lot of ground here, and for those of you who appreciate a good cocktail, there's a little something to add to your menu towards the end of this interview. Things are great, man. Just uh, ready for the NAM madness to start this week. Yes, are you NAMing? Uh, just going to go see some friends from uh, the East Coast that are going to be in town. So uh, looking for, I always look forward to seeing my old New York buddies and, of course, all the industry people. Yeah, yeah. 
that, that's that's a good place to start actually talk about talk about nam and what there is to do there and because you know i i went for a few years and friends of mine in atlanta and kansas city who who don't go very often or have never been kind of asked me like what what do you do there what's the <laughs> you know so for somebody who's never been like just just describe that a little bit and what there is for kind of the average musician to accomplish on that weekend well, it's definitely a, a lot of information overload. There's so much to see, so much to look at, and so many people are there. Um, all sorts of people, professionals, amateur, uh, hobbyists, you know, people that maybe shouldn't ought to be there. <laughs> you know, uh, People with uh, agendas, people that are just going to see friends, people that are going to see endorsers, and people that are trying to hook up endorsements, uh, which are, that's, that can be some of the more painful uh, kind of encounters to witness uh, yeah. when you see people that just walk right up to the rep and ask them like hey I, i'm interested in an endorsement it's like well you've picked the worst time to do it <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely so i mean i remember you know going back uh, i've been in los angeles it's coming up on 10 years in february mm-hmm. and uh, i remember when i first went to the nam show um i was just kind of observed and was like wow this is pretty pretty much a feeding frenzy uh, in yeah. the industry and it was, you know, it was interesting, and I get to, I got to meet a lot of my heroes and people that I've always, you know, admired and so on. Uh, and then as time went on, uh, you know, I got a couple of phone numbers, and I developed relationships with uh, a bunch of companies. And after that, you're kind of like in the family, so to speak. And you know, a lot of musicians love to poo-poo Nam and say, "Oh, you know, like I'm not into that at all." It's like whatever, man. I always have fun when I go, and it's just you know, great opportunity to thank my endorsers see my friends and I don't go all every day, but uh, I go a couple of times and I enjoy it. So right. yeah. That, and that's what it, that's what it became to me after a few years in LA. I, you know, I got a couple of endorsements and a couple of contacts and it became, you know, kind of a one-stop shop to say hi to all those people and, uh, and thank them in person. But I remember the first year I went, um, I, I had, I had lived in LA for like three months and, uh, you know, I was, I was like, I live in LA now I'm going to go to Nam And, and I blocked out two days to do it. And, I think like by the by the middle of the second day I was just exhausted and dejected and realized that I really had no business being there whatsoever like there was <laughs> nothing I could accomplish I didn't know anybody um so you know I just I tell people you know have have a specific list of people that you want to say hi to or Absolutely. Know, things that you want to do or see, just, you know, going there and wandering around and seeing who you meet and what happens is it's just death. <laughs> it's absolute but death. Not to mention, not to mention the ear fatigue is like out of control. It's so the worst. You must bring earplugs, kitties. Okay? Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so 10 years in LA, huh? Yeah. Coming up on it. It's been, uh, it's been pretty, pretty trippy being out here for so long. Uh, I've never lived anywhere. As long, uh, other than home, which was uh, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I really do love it here, and uh, I, I don't plan on leaving. I mean, uh, I got the Pacific Ocean right here. I manage a building right on the beach, so I, I couldn't be happier. I got a great family, and I'm a lucky guy. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, upstate New York is home for you, right? Actually, Long Island. Oh, Long Island. Uh, okay. I, I, I talk with Nick Mancini about you all the time, and, and he mentions that you, you two both came from New York, and... Uh, I th- I thought you came from the same neighborhood he did up there and uh, yeah he he's up near Potsdam I believe uh, right yeah but uh, we met we met actually on Long Island on a gig when we were both like little children teenagers trying <laughs> trying to play, trying to play jazz on Long Island when everyone else was into like hair bands and stuff <laughs> <laughs> so so 
what was what was your experience like growing up there and and what was your early musical experience like uh well i mean i had i was really fortunate that my 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 dad uh loved jazz so he had a really rad record collection um and i rated it constantly and plus my sisters were listening to like you know all what was current at the time i had two older sisters and uh they were into you know zeppelin and the doors and right. pop popular music. So I had a good mix of everything. Um, but my dad would definitely put the jazz bug in my ear. And, uh, you know, when I could come into my own, I, you know, I, Zeppelin was like the gateway to, to, to rush. And right. after all that, I started taking some drum lessons with local guys. Um, actually the first drummer, one of the first drummers for twisted sister, uh, <laughs> Joey Markowski, may he rest in peace. And then uh, Al Miller, who was like a big band drummer, kind of like in the likes of like a Louis Belson or a Buddy Rich type, um, like all about reading, all about hands and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a really great education for me. And then as I got into high school, um, I started, you know, listening to Power Power and James Brown and like, you know, more fusion-y stuff like Bob uh, Vishnu and right. things like that. And uh, I really started getting serious about it, like, sophomore junior year of high school and started going to jazz band competition won some soloist awards won a bunch of scholarships ended up going to berkeley for my undergrad met a lot of great people there one of the first people i met was abe jr and he mm-hmm. was uh he was a force to be reckoned with he was already kind of like doing incredible stuff yeah already but just hearing the stories of him like yeah you know i go to sessions with my dad when i was a kid it's like wow no, I never did anything like that. He's like, yeah, I know, you know, Vinny and Harvey Mason and Alex Acuna. I'm like, oh, sure, yeah, right, those guys. <laughs> What's that like? You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was a pretty unpleasant being uh, just an hour outside of the city. I got to go and see some incredible uh, music all the time. I think I saw Dennis Chambers when I was like a junior in high school, and that completely destroyed me. And then, yeah, yeah. So so Vinny the next year with Chick Corea at the Blue Note, and that, that was incredible. And, well, I was you know, going to ask you, like was, you, you're you're really you're really a chameleon of a drummer, and and all the different projects I see you doing are, you know, there's some jazz, some fusion, some pop rock, um, but it, you know, it's it's making sense to me that all this stuff was was brewing in you from an early age. You know, you had your your dad putting the jazz in your ears, and your older sisters with the pop, and then by the time you're in high school, kind of the young man. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, sure. uh, testosterone kicks in and you get into the fusion. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's pretty much how it went. So, I mean, you know, the projects that I'm involved in, uh, are, are basically, uh, every genre possible essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, right after college, I did a record with, uh, with John Zorn, um, uh, as a, he was a guest on a record, we were uh, a band in college at Berkeley called Prelapse, and mm-hmm. we played uh, a couple of Naked City records in their entirety. Uh, the keyboard player, who's a brilliant um, musical director on Broadway now by the name of Alex Lacamoire, uh, he transcribed all of the record along with the bass player, Mason Wendell, and we played all the songs and we did a cafeteria show <laughs> <laughs> at Berkeley and we, and we taped it and we sent the tape to Zorn and he was like, Hey, I, you know, I got a bunch of material that naked city never released. He was pretty blown away by the fact that we took the time to learn everything pretty much note for note. Um, napalm clusters and all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he had us come down to New York and right after college, we all went down there and 
we did a couple of records with him, Music for Children, and then there was another one, I think, under our own name on Sodic, his old label. And uh, that was that was my gateway to New York, like playing with you know one of my all time heroes at the time, John Zorn. Yeah, and for those for those who don't know, tell tell people a little bit about John Zorn and sort of his place in in modern jazz. Sure, John Zorn is like basically the ambassador for the downtown art avant garde scene that was really kind of brewing in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, he also is involved with what's called radical Jewish culture, which is. Uh, you know he's he's all for like being super proud uh, Jew. Masada is one of his band with uh, Dave Douglas, Greg Cohen, and Joey Barron, and it's right. like, like total like incredible old school Jewish beautiful melodies put to this like you know ravenous just raging rhythm section of Joey Barron. I mean they could play the tenderest ballad and then stuff that sounds like you know sugar almost. right, right. <laughs> you know? i think that's that's what i know zorn best for is is that group masada and i i highly recommend people check Incredible. it out because joey baron is just Genius. such a monster and a beautiful musical player and those tunes you know a, a lot of them <laughs> sound like like you said like modern prog rock with these odd meters and these crazy melodies but they're they're traditional jewish folk songs and religious songs correct yeah, uh, some of them, and then the, of course John uh, is a possibly prolific composer. The guy's written, you know, as much music as you know anybody. I mean, right. the, only, the only American composers that rival his output are possibly, you know, probably Frank Zappa because Frank wrote more than more music than Bach. In fact, <laughs> man. And, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, John. John basically what Wynton Marsalis is to uh, holding the tr- the tradition together and being the purveyor of paying homage to. The older, um, uh, more traditional forms of jazz. John Zorn is to the you know more forward-thinking, uh, experimental types of music, and he's looked to uh, and and for a time was like kind of I- idolized as a bit of a deity <laughs> in those uh, in certain circles. So yeah, so for me starting out like that, it's like it couldn't have started out any more out, and I've <laughs> kind of worked my way back to. So, you know, being young and ambitious and, and trying to think like, oh, well, you know, I'm playing with Zorn, so I'm going to immediately rock it up to, you know, avant-garde stardom. And it's like, nah, it doesn't really work like is, that. Is there such a thing as avant-garde stardom? Well, to, to me, there was. Right, you know, I mean, right. I look at people like Joey Barron, and who's still one of the most incredible, you know, musicians, not only drummers that I've ever, you know, had the pleasure of listening to. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting the the twists and turns it takes. And, and funny enough, just getting back to Zorn for a second, he, uh, he's he got a band, um, God, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. Uh, it's, it's a lot of the same guys, but the music that he's written for this band is very consonant and almost loungy and huh. super, super grooving. It's funny. So it, it also says uh, on your... I've been stalking your Facebook page for the last couple of days, but uh, it, it says uh, you attended NYU also, right? I did. Uh, right after I got out of Berkeley, um, I got a bunch of scholarships to uh, NYU, and uh, I, I, they had a master's program that was two years long. So I figured, ah, what the heck? I'm, I was 21 when I graduated from college, uh, so I was like, I'm just going to get it all out of the way. So I got my master's at NYU in two years. And right after I got done getting my master's there, they asked me to teach uh, on the faculty uh, in the jazz department. So that oh, wow. was a great opportunity and super fun. You know? Yeah. So your your time in New York before you moved to L.A. was was 
sounds like it was primarily creative music, jazz projects and, and uh, Zorn and, and, and everybody else, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, just to just to be clear, um, I only did a couple of records with Zorn and uh, we did a couple of live things with him at a defunct club down on the Lower East Side. Uh, but that was that was right after college. And then it was, I was kind of more like a kind of a sort of what they would refer to as a, a working stiff, like lots of lots of club dates. They call them casuals in L.A. Right. Um, and then, you know, lots of fun gigs with my friends playing at like, you know, Birdland or, you know, wherever. Right. Uh, but, it, you know, it was an incredible time, and I got to play with some of the best musicians, and it's wonderful. Um, but it was also, like, at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm making my 25, 35 grand a year, whatever it was at the mm-hmm. time. It's like, just getting by, but there's got to be more, so. Yeah, yeah. So, go west, young man, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And did, did L.A. specifically pull you, or, or was it just kind of, I got to do something other than New York? And well, it's... It's funny. That, that's a great question. Um, I actually, uh, at the time, was spending a lot of time in Europe and had the opportunity. I was actually about to move um, to Switzerland, uh, but the guy that was going to sponsor me for citizenship ended up passing away, oh. which was like, okay, so what am I going to do now? So I was talking, was, my buddy Fausto Cuevas, um, great percussionist, plays with Stevie Wonder, Jennifer Lopez, yada, yada, yada. He called me up and we were talking. He's like, what's going on? I told him the story. He was like, hey, man, why don't you try L.A.? He goes, you do great out here, you know? Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, well, I speak the same language, use the same money. I've always liked California. Let's <laughs> give it a shot. So I threw my drums in my car and I drove across uh, the country on Super Bowl Sunday uh, and through a major snowstorm. It was pretty rad. Oh, and then, God. And then my buddy called me. Uh, <laughs> my buddy called me uh, in, I think, late February. And uh, from he, I had sublet to him. He said, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm at the beach. What are you doing? He said, I'm digging my car out. And I, was like, yeah. <laughs> so I think I'm going to stay here. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, the, the first day I got here, I had a gig playing with uh, Oscar Cartaya at uh, a now defunct club in the valley called Lavalie. And, um, you know, it's like Latin Fantasia, lots of fun Latin stuff. Mm-hmm. Joey DeLeon was playing percussion. Fausto was on percussion. A lot of fun, and you know Stanley Clark's in the audience, and um, I met Chris Coleman that night, and just it was immediately it was like okay, this seems like a good move, and you know it was a lot of fun to kind of have a whole new musical playground. I met a lot of wonderful people that first couple of months I was here that I still uh, play with today, and yeah, talk about that that first couple of months because something we talk about on the podcast a lot is is sort of working your way into a new scene. Um, particularly a big scene like L.A. or New York or Nashville. Um, sure. So, did, like, did you have a specific strategy about your first few months there, or or did you just kind of land and see what was what was here? Well, it's funny, you know. I'm I'm a problem because I don't have a scene. You know, my scene is like I want to play folklore Cuban music with the illest dudes possible, and then and then I want to play metal, uh, and then I want to play jazz with like the the baddest dudes right. and I, I want to play funk with the, you know, like the guys that have the most grief, you know, like I want to just be involved in the most robust musical situation given whatever genre. So normal guys move to town and they go to where they want to hang. Like if you're a jazz dude and you move to LA, you go and you hang at the whale or you go and you hang, uh, you know, wherever like the USC kind of crowd is. Right. So I had to kind of, I had to cover a lot of territory because 
stagnation for me is just playing one genre. I mean, I'm not the best at anything, but I'm really good at a lot of stuff. You right. Know? And for right. me, that's more interesting. You know. Yeah. So when I got, when I got to town, you know, when I decided, all right, I'm going to try LA. I called everyone I knew in LA, uh, all the jazz dudes, all my rock buddies, all the studio guys, you know, everyone I could think of. And I just kind of said, look, look, I'm moving to town. I think it's going to be permanent if, if it works out. Uh, you know, what should I do? Who's the baddest dude uh, on the, you know, like if I want to hire a saxophone player for a jazz gig or a guitar player, like who should I call? So I kind of, I hit the ground and went in a million different directions. And I'm always very scattered. It's kind of just my nature. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so I got here and I just kind of tried to make the rounds and, you know, go to the baked potato, go to Catalina, go to, um, you know, the Sunset Strip, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just the whole thing. Just kind of find out where the studios are, kind of just hang around everywhere, be open to doing anything, reconnecting with old friends that have lived here for many years. That's the best advice I could give anyone moving to a new scene. But, man, if I had to do it now, whew, yeah. Business is rough. <laughs> I mean, I, I work a ton, I think, because, you know, I, um, because I do so many different kinds of music. But if I was just playing one kind of music, I, you know, I think it would be very difficult for people yeah, to, yeah. to break in now. And you talk about making the rounds and, and, you know, showing your face at all these different places. How, how frequently and for how long did you have to do that before you felt like you really got some traction? Well, fortunately... Uh, a lot of my friends like Fausto uh, hooked me up with gigs immediately, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, w- I didn't fall into an incredible huge gig, but I did a lot of local stuff. And when you do a lot of local stuff, you know how it is. I mean, you, you've done the same thing yourself, but we're trying to spread the gospel of, uh, on the podcast. So I, I hear you. <laughs> so um, instead of me saying, you know how it is, you, you know, you try to, you know, you make your little business cards and you try to meet as many like-minded people and tell them that you're here and you're available and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, jam sessions help to a certain degree. But I did that for about uh, when I wasn't gigging, which was often when I got here. I mean, I maybe had like one or two things a week and sometimes nothing, sometimes five things or whatever it is. But, um, you know, I did that for about about three three months or so. You know? And then mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, not as ro- it's not as huge a scene as New York. Like in New York, there's... There's, uh, you know, a hundred places to play in LA. There's a dozen. Right. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that was about it. So what would you say was kind of your first, uh, your first quote unquote big gig in LA when you kind of broke out of the, the local, you know, week to week kind of gigs and, and got, uh, got a real job. (laughs) <laughs> well, again, uh, this is early on. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have gone to school with Sean Hurley, great bass player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I told him I was coming to town, uh, he said he might need someone to fill in on a few dates with Vertical Horizon. Um, so uh, I did a bunch of gigs with them. I think in, I want to say, I moved here in February of 07. So I think those gigs were in the summer of 07, which, wow. was, which was really uh, pretty fortunate. Me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we did uh, maybe like uh, we did about half a dozen gigs with them, mm-hmm. uh, and they, they, at that point they were working pretty sporadically, just kind of uh, festivals, casinos, things like that. Um, but that was you know great to play those awesome songs that uh, that Matt wrote, uh, the singer. Um, but yeah, man, that was like the first one that after I did that. Um, I, I connected with Sabian. Uh, I said I needed some stuff, and 
uh, someone hooked me up with Chris Stanky from St- Sabian, and he, uh, he gave me my first set of cymbals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and after that, it kind of snowballed endorsement-wise, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that, was the, that was the first pop thing that I did. And then um, I played, uh, after that, I did some stuff with some American Idol uh, people. Um, Justin Guarini, the guy, right. that lost, the guy that lost to Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> right, right. I think Jamie, played, Jamie Tate played with him a little bit too, didn't he? Oh, I, I'm not sure, but possibly. It's, possibly. <laughs> it's, it's probably the two of you and, and a few other guys as well. Absolutely. But yeah, after that, it was, um, you know, uh, bounced around to, from a bunch of gigs. And, you know, the other thing is, is, uh, is doing those gigs is fun and it's, it's very interesting. It's like, you know, uh, to see how the other half lives, so to speak. I mean, I had done uh, big pop tours from, uh, the East coast, but, uh, you know, it had been a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, when you move to town and people find out that you can, you know, play, you know, ethnic music like i do i do a lot of uh, latin stuff cuban particularly puerto mm-hmm. rican music. when they find out that you can sing coro and play clave and all that stuff you kind of get sucked into certain scenes so i kind of got sucked into the latin scene for a minute which i'm still happily you know engrossed in not as a percussionist primarily but as a like latin jazz type thing right um you kind of get sidetracked because i love doing that stuff so much i love playing pop music but uh i always kind of end up playing more cerebral music or whatever. <laughs> so as, as the years went on, I've done more pop stuff. I continue to do so. But um, fortunately, I, I have a, a side project that allows me to do the gigs that I would like to do as opposed to the gigs that I have to do nowadays. Right. So. And talking about getting sucked into a, a specific scene, um, I, I had a similar experience in L.A. where I, I kind of got sucked into the swing scene. Uh, again, happily, because I, I love that music. Um but, you know, I kind of, I was, I was torn between, you know, I'm, I'm getting these gigs playing this kind of music with this crowd. Should I put more energy into pursuing more of that? Or should I, you know, save, should I save some time and energy to go, you know, dig some trenches in some other areas? Um, was that, is that something you, you ever struggled with? Yeah, not, not really. I just kind of, uh, it's kind of made myself like water as uh as bruce lee would say just kind of mold your environment and do whatever wherever the current takes you because ultimately you know this conversation uh that we're having no matter where it goes is fine you know mm-hmm. what i mean like, i don't have any agenda not nor do you we're just trying to you know get some oh i have a big agenda i want to i want to get <laughs> i want to get tears out of you man i want to hear confessions Good luck. <laughs> I didn't feel nothing anymore. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, but you know, uh, ultimately I, I enjoy the ride as much as I can, you know, mm-hmm. and I think for me, that's what it's about. I'm a, I'm a proud papa. I'm all about my little girl and I've become more of a family man. I, I kind of don't like traveling as much unless it's worth it, mm-hmm. you know, so happy to stay at home and do lots of, uh, lots of fun local gigs. Yeah. And, you know, occasionally I'll do uh, travel dates with either Johnny Rivers, uh, Mr. Secret Agent Man himself, mm-hmm. or uh, sometimes uh, the last long tour I did was with Nick Hexum from 311. He had a little side project a couple of years ago. We went out for a couple of weeks with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's got to be worth it. Now my main bread and butter is missing persons, which is a crazy uh, 
thing to think about for me that I'm sitting in Terry's old seat. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> talk about Missing Persons and not only how you came to, to cross paths with that band, but just, you know, a little bit about the, the history of that band in, in 80s pop and Bozio and, and that band's connection to Zappa and, uh, and Go. <laughs> Go. So yeah, uh, Missing Persons uh, came uh, along onto the scene uh, in the early 80s. Uh, their seeds were planted by well, Terry Bozio, Warren Cucurullo, and Dale Bozio, mm-hmm. uh, along with Patrick O'Hearn and Chuck Wild, the Wild Men. Um, they were leaving Frank's band at the time, um, and that was the change of the guard from Mike Patrick O'Hearn and Terry uh, and, and that crew over to Vinny and Arthur Barrow and that new crew, although uh, Warren stuck around for a little bit longer, um, and I think Patrick did as well, mm-hmm. uh, just because they're both on Joe's Garage. But, you know, Terry and Dell were both around, too, because uh, once you're in that diaspora of uh, dysfunctional extended family, you're, <laughs> pretty, you're pretty much in there. Yeah. Good, but um, yeah, so they kind of wanted to do something obviously more pop oriented, and I, I believe, from what I understand, it was it was a calculated uh, it was a calculated endeavor. Like they're like, get a pretty girl that can sing, and we're gonna write these tunes, and we're gonna embrace the new wave culture. And they recorded it up uh, at Frank's studio on Woodrow Wilson up there, which. Yeah. I think Lady Gaga owns the house now. I don't know if that's secret or whatever, but I don't care. Well, uh, <laughs> it's out now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they 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 immediately had like incredible success with that uh, with that music. And uh, Terry and Warren are both you know brilliant musicians and songwriters. And uh, when I first got into the band, I was like, oh my god, I have to play all these parts exactly. But I'm like. Yeah, I'm not bringing a 25-piece drum kit to the gig, so right. I, I kind of watched some videos, and I was like, all right, I can probably get away with most of this stuff on a five- or six-piece kit. So yeah. I down, and I don't agonize over the fact that I'm not nailing every 16th note triplet fill in the middle of Windows anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, and, and plus, Dale is, you know, she's like my... Uh, She's a sweetheart. I love her. She's like, do what, do what you want, honey. Just rock out. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, since I've joined the band, it was, it's been a couple of years now. Um, we've gone through uh, a couple of different personnel changes. And when I got the gig, it was like, okay, this is not what I expected, but it's kind of turned into, it's gotten, it's gotten better and better. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, a great guitar player now and a uh, great uh, bass player, the guitar player is Carl D'Amico. The bass player is Prescott Niles from the Knack. Uh-huh. Um, Fred Bensey's on keyboards, and uh, and Miss Dale and myself, and we've kind of gotten to a place where it's feeling like a lot of fun. And and in my opinion, the, this this incarnation of the band is the best incarnation of the band uh, in a long time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not. I don't want to compare anything, but it's just it feels like a very strong version of the band. Yeah, it's also strong uh, in like mid '90s when Joe Traverse was doing it with mm-hmm. Wes Waymiller, Thistle. Uh, when they were doing it, it was very strong, and Warren was still doing it. But, uh, Warren's not involved anymore. It's just Dale and then uh, the aforementioned person. Right, so we're, in a, we're in a good place, and it's fun to. We did like the forum last year. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. <laughs> yeah. that was cool as hell. Yeah, so just uh, it's it's an honor to to sit in that 
and see. Yeah. In in what ways uh, was it not quite what you expected at, at the beginning? Well, uh, I thought it was going to be very. Um, I thought it was going to be very much like you better nail this down to every last you know exact orchestration on every tom. But it, it's more like she's uh, she just wants there to be uh, a spirit, you know, like mm-hmm. a rocking. Um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, essentially, she wants the intention. Yeah. Rocking intention. Yeah. As opposed to like agonizing over little parts, you know. Right. It's cool. It's cool when a band or a band leader sort of gives you the the license to, you know, break from what came before you in 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 a way and just tell you I I don't care what you play, but I care how you play it. Here's yeah. how I want you to play it. Precisely. Yeah, that I, I prefer that so much rather than someone at you like being it's gotta be like this, you know, right. the fill's gotta be bat boom dagadun. What about brat padatu? No, that's not it's like really? Okay. <laughs> and we've all we've both been there, I'm sure, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's a lot a lot more fun when they uh it's like you hired me because you like me. And if you don't like me anymore, I'm not gonna cry if you get someone else. You know? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> all good. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Zappa, you, you made an appearance on, it was, it, what is it? A Zappa compilation album? The post, the posthumous stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What was uh, that? Um, well, at that time, uh, I was very involved with, uh, with the, the, the family in general and I was around, uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Joe, uh, was up there. Joe Travers was up there doing a lot of production. And he asked me if I wanted to plan a couple of tracks for some upcoming posthumous releases where they would get people that were involved, like uh, Beverly D'Angelo and um, Holland Greco, uh, and just kind of various people that were in that world, the Zappa world. However, um, they were affiliated. Uh, they Gail was giving them uh, chances to record some music, and mm-hmm. then they would compile it with some old stuff. So, right. You know, the, the one that I'm on, I, yeah, I look at the I look at the liner notes, and it's just like, yeah, sure, you know, the drummers on this record are Vinny and Chad and Terry and me. <laughs> are you kidding me? So I mean, <laughs> I, that's was, good company, man. It's surreal for me, you know. I mean, uh, it was unbelievable. So I mean, ultimately, uh, the one that I did, I think I'm on two tracks. I'm on, um, the bass player from Metallica's wife. Um, whose name escapes me? Last name is Trujillo. The right. Guy <laughs> the Jocko. This is, this is Trujillo. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Chloe, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she sang The Torture Never Stops. I think she did it in English and French. It's a long time ago. I can't really remember. Wow. I played, I think I played drums on that one or percussion. I can't remember. I think I played drums on it. And then uh, I did the one that I like. Um, the most that I did was the uh, me and Holland Greco, who is the daughter of a studio musician uh, in L.A. for many years. Uh, she did a version of "Take Your Clothes Off When You Dance," and it's just me playing brushes with these uh, on a. It's just brushes, uh, kick, snare, uh, and the hi hats that I'm using are like toy cheesy toy symbols that I would 
go to Guitar Center and be like, you got any of those crap symbols that, uh, <laughs> that, that on the kitty kits that you can sell me? I was like, well, they're part of the kids' kit. I'm like, I beg these guys to sell me these garbage-ass symbols. <laughs> and they're like, why do you want those? I'm like, because I'm an idiot. <laughs> it's like, I like the way they sound, man. F off, you know? Right, right. So anyway, so I finally kind of rammed that through and got those symbols on. So if you listen to the, the version of Take Your Clothes Off When You Dance that, that we do, those hi-hat splash, that's like exactly what I was looking for. and. Oh, Joe, did cool. a, Joe did a great job producing it, and Holland sings her butt off, and it's it's a, it's a cute little track. So. And what is the name of that project again? That whole album? Um, I think that one was called. Uh, it's like a bunch of a a's. Yeah, it's like, like a, a, anything, anywhere, anytime. Uh, God, for no remember. reason at all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's an acronym like A A A N F R something. Yeah. Which just which just basically is a nod to absurdity, you know, right. because why not? You know? So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Speaking of symbols, um, something that I always think about when when I think of you is is your symbol setup. At least the one I saw you using uh, with uh, Nick Mancini. Um, I went up to your kit and like they were Sabian symbols. I could still see the the logo on them, but they they <laughs> they looked fucked man they look i i think I, I asked you i was like did you did you take a belt sander to a brand new sabian symbol and you were like yeah that's basically what i did um, so, <laughs> so like you you kind of have your own little system to to kind of alter the sound of of your symbols and this is something that not a lot of drummers do i think a lot of drummers you know think i don't i don't have the symbol expertise to take a hammer or something else to my symbol to alter the sound of it. So talk a little bit about your relationship with your symbols. <laughs> well, it's very special. Uh, <laughs> I, when I got to town, um, I am really interested in the, the construction of drums and uh, symbol making and things like that, just because I'm a nerd and all. But uh, I was sent in the direction of a gentleman by the name of Matt Bettis, who is a symbolsmith that lived up in Simi Valley, still lives in Simi Valley, although he's been on the road kind of in perpetuity over the last few years, but went up to his place and he's got a circular vertical lathe, which is uh, what they use to kind of uh, cut, uh, cut the lines into the symbols with, with, a, with an awl and a, a lever. Right. Uh, he's got a hole set up and I get up there and he like turns to turns towards me and he looks like he's standing between two bales of metal hay, which is uh, basically when you when symbols spinning at a rapid velocity and he's shaving off layers of the symbol, it spools off and like lands in these giant piles and it looks like you know Easter hay or right. 
you know, but metallic. So he, I'm like, this guy is rad. So he, <laughs> he, he showed me a few of his symbols that he made, which he makes excellent symbols. And I said, man, I've been looking for you forever. Mm-hmm. And so he let me, uh, he actually let me do it myself. Uh, he's like, you want to try? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I, I just got the, uh, I just felt the, uh, a level of confidence uh, from him, like go for it. It doesn't matter if you mess it up. So just dig in. So I was like, all right. He goes, yeah, man, you got a knack for it. You know, most people are kind of timid about it, but you just went for it. I said, well, if you're gonna do it, you might as well do it. Yeah. You know? So uh, and then I was watching him hammer some symbols, uh, and then he he kind of he did some work on a few symbols for me. Um, this is pre Sabian, and then post Sabian endorsement. Um, he kind of went on the road for a long time and I'm calling him. He's like, oh, I'm still out on the road, man, you know, doing stuff. And I'm like, shit, I can't wait anymore. <laughs> you know, So I was like, I'm not going to get, I looked into buying a circular lathe and it's like way too expensive. And, uh, uh, I kind of did a little research on that. So I was like, Oh, maybe I'll just try hammering, uh, my symbol. So I kind of looked at his setup. He had like a stump of, of uh, a wood and a circular metallic, uh, uh, like a, a kind of a cylindrical metallic, uh, like an anvil, basically, right? It, sort of, yeah. yeah. Uh, like like a circular anvil with a curved top mm-hmm. that he would kind of put the symbol on. And kind of, I was watching his technique as he hammered it. He let me take a couple of swings at it. So basically, what I did is I just took what he uh, showed me and adapted it to my crude environment where my drums are um, and my symbols are. And I just started kind of gently going for it. And I was like, okay, I can, I'm kind of seeing the changes that I'm making and it's important after you, um, tune your symbols, Mm -hmm. uh, that you let them rest because you reconfigure the molecules. And as Matt says, the symbol gets angry. So you need to wait a day or two for it to chill out and then you hear what it really sounds like after you've manipulated the sound. So that's basically where that came from. And then, um, you know, I'd bought a symbol from a kid in Philly, uh, about 15 years ago. I can't remember his name. Uh, really beautiful old A. And it had what looked like sanding marks on it. So I always kind of had that in the back of my mind. It was one of my favorite symbols. And I still, uh, I gave it to a friend to borrow and he sold it. And he knows who he is if he hears it. He's like, Dude, <laughs> let it go, bro. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I always re- kept that in the back of my mind. So I would, I would hammer the symbols and I, I took a, basically a power sander, uh, which is you can affix to the end of a, a drill bit. Uh, it's like a circular, like basically it looks like um, uh, metal, uh, like a metal brush that yeah. spins rapidly. And, uh, I kind of just started to approximate, uh, the, the sanding on with that. And, you know, I kind of got a little, I got uh, a technique that I, that by no means trademark, but that's what I do. And that's how I get the sound of my current symbol setup. And the funny thing is, is, is the moral of the story is, um, Two or three NAMs ago, I played at this Sabian 30-year anniversary event. It was me and Tim LaFave from uh, Derek Trucks. Oh, I love him. Me too. Good buddy. Um, and uh, Brian Charette, great organist. Who's love him of, too. Yeah, we're doing, a, we're doing a record next week with Doug Webb. And nice. going to do some stuff. I'm actually playing percussion on a gig where Danny Carey's playing drums. <laughs> <laughs> How many drummers get to do that? Yeah, man. Anyway, so we're playing the Sabian event, and Robert Zildjian, the old, the old man, was still alive at that point. 
and the ride symbol that I had an artisan ride that I had, you know, done my thing to, he was coming up to speak and he goes, what the hell ride symbol is that? I go, it's one of the best ones you ever made. And then I messed with it a little bit. He goes, that thing sounds incredible. So I was like, okay, thanks man. So I guess it, you know, I guess it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what is, what is that kind of sanding on, on the surface due to the sound as opposed to hammering? Well, the, the hammering can do a bunch of different things. You can, you can change the sound of the cymbal. Uh, you can make it, you got to be careful because you can make it sound more China-ish mm-hmm. or, you, or you could make it sound uh, a little too washy or you could make it sound uh, drier by hammering it in different regions. But you kind of have to just experiment and each cymbal is sort of unique. There, there are certain things like if you hammer it uh, a shit ton towards the edges, it's going to make it wash out and be uh, – it's just going to be too washy and like not a lot of stick definition. I've ruined a few symbols. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, th- and then I'm like, hmm, I wonder how hard, you know, you, you know oh, I guess that was too hard. Sorry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, you know, I don't do it as I, I've, I've kind of honed it down to, uh, I, I kind of know what I'm doing now. I'm by no means a symbol Smith, but, uh, I've gotten it. And it seems like the, the sanding thing just sort of trashes things up, right? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I skipped that. Uh, to me, the sanding, uh, essentially what that seems to do for me is kind of just, depending on the symbol, it seems to just kind of mellow it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if I'm talking out of my ass or not, but I mean, <laughs> uh, I basically like, I feel like it kind of mellows the symbol a little bit. I could be wrong. But yeah, yeah. And that I, I noticed that too. Like the the attack kind of rounds out a little bit more. And, and there's not, you know, the overtones even out, not, you know, they don't have weird overtones that jump out. It's kind of a much more complex, tightly packed sort of group of overtones. Pseudo compressed, if you will. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about uh, a couple of the other projects that you do in LA. Uh, One of them is your, your steady, your trio Tuesday night gig at Trip. Yeah. In Santa Monica. Talk about – that's been going on for years now, right? Coming up on three years. Yeah, Julian Coriel uh, and Joe Bag and myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, Julian and I met uh, again right when I moved to town. I didn't know him when he was in New York, funny enough. Um, we just you know, never crossed paths, but uh, we've become like brothers since I moved here. Uh, and that's an organ trio with, with Julian on guitar. Yeah, and, he, and vocals as well. And oh, Joe, cool. And Joe Bag playing uh, – the, the organ so um it started out me and julian just talking and being like man you know not a lot of steadies going on you know in new york it's like you can rely on you know village vanguard band uh, monday nights at the vanguard mike stern every monday and wednesday wayne krantz every thursday like there's all these things that you know every night right uh and plus you know being being you know of the jazz ilk you know primarily i would have to say at, at this point there's not really any denying it you know, you want to play every as much as you can. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, I want to, you know, go and do a show or what. It's like, no, nah, man, this is your life, and you need to play. As mm-hmm. you know, it's like I need to play every as much as possible. So we're like, let's just get a gig at some dive. No offense to trip there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> use it, that term lovingly. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, it's like the fifty-five bar in New York is yeah. the epitome. You know, but uh, yeah, so it's just like let's just find somewhere locally. He lives on the west side too. He lives in Venice. I live in Santa Monica. I was just like, man, let's just find a place on an off night and just do it. So mm-hmm. you know, we've done, we've been doing that gig. We haven't missed a, 
haven't missed a Tuesday in three years. Not the same personnel, obviously. He mm-hmm. has to go out with Alanis or, you know, his dad's group. What I love about that is that, you know, rather than just sort of get together every Tuesday and blow through some tunes and, and whatever, I don't know if it's every week, but it's pretty frequently that you kind of devise a theme for that yeah. Tuesday. And it's not necessarily a tribute show to somebody, but like talk talk about the the various themes that you've had on on some of those Tuesdays. And if you saw the list, it, it it's <laughs> Julian sent out a, a, a an email to Joe and I about six months ago. Like, yeah, man, just take a look at what we've done so far. And I kept scrolling and scrolling. And <laughs> I mean, um, we got uh, we got this idea like, yeah, let's just kind of do uh, an album side every week just for fun. So we started out easy with stuff that we wouldn't have to do a lift a finger of work to do. Let's do kind of blue. It's like we don't know that like the back of our hand. Right. It's, it's, Everyone of our friends can sing all of Miles' solos. And, you know, yeah. So, so we, we started out easy. We do stuff like that. And then you know, uh, gradually it's like, let's do some pop stuff or some old school stuff. So we did some Beatles stuff. And then, then we started get, like, you know, going a little bit off the deep end. It was like, all right, uh, Joe's not going to be here next week. Let's do Van Halen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you know, because Julian's tastes are as eclectic as mine, as are Joe's. But I mean, some music lends itself more towards you know the rock power trio. So right. We've we've done some really you know obscure stuff, and then at a certain point, this we started doing these tributes, pseudo tributes, uh, about two years ago. We did uh, a Bowie tribute, then we did a Prince tribute, and then this was you know while they were both still alive. And then, you know, sadly, last year we lost both of them. And we were like, oh, my God. Like, let's be careful who we do tributes to. It's like, <laughs> no Steve, no Sonny Rollins, no Stevie Wonder, no Wayne Shorter, no Herbie Hitt. Like, who are all the you know, geniuses that are still with us? Like, we're not doing any tributes right. to those people, right. you know. But, uh, yeah, it's been super fun and it's challenging. And we don't rehearse. It's just like we're doing side one of Abbey Road, see on stage. And it's not perfect, but who cares? You right. know, it's just. It's just right. I, that's that's it's such a cool idea because it it keeps I mean it keeps you from getting bored obviously but you know after you've been doing it for a few years like you said everybody knows Julian Cor- Julian Coriel trio at Trip every Tuesday but yeah. it's not just it's not just whatever you feel like playing every Tuesday and you're gonna sleep through it it's like what are they doing this week sure before we go people got to know about our our shared our shared favorite cocktail, our passion, <laughs> the, the, the libation that we have bonded over, over text so many times, numerous times. Yeah, we are yeah. both, we're both very fond of the, uh, the gin based cocktail, the Negroni, which, uh, you know, Zach, uh, often takes pictures of toasting to me <laughs> <laughs> from various locations around America. Yeah. But yeah, but, uh, man, uh, God, that's my dad used to drink those when I was a kid. And I remember like, Taking a sip and being like, "Oh God, that's horrifying." It's most people's <laughs> first reaction to that cocktail. <laughs> but uh, since then, I've definitely one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, that, the, you know, my that's my wife's reaction to that cocktail. Uh, but you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the enlightened among us have have grown to uh, appreciate and love the the perfect balance, the holy trinity of ingredients that is vermouth, gin, and Campari with us. Yes orange slice just In, the, just, just the ride <laughs> indeed indeed and i remember so you're hip to the boulevardier too right yes i right. i am so so the, the for for the uninitiated the boulevardier is equal parts bourbon sweet vermouth and campari so i like i like a negroni in the summer and a boulevardier in the winter and you're welcome working drummer podcast audience <laughs> 
for your for your uh, taste track to all of your listening coming up. <laughs> the Boulevardier and then the Grody. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, just um, before uh, before we do sign off, I just kind of wanted to uh, let you know about some upcoming stuff uh, from my end here. Please do. Um, going to be doing uh, a lot more playing with my band. I have a new band. Uh, it's called Blanco Diablo y Los Gringos con Clave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let people translate that on their own. That's, that's beautiful. I love yeah. That. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, because, you know, uh, the, the band is, we had a, another residency at a place in Santa Monica, but the, uh, the neighbors uh, were like, it's too loud. And it's like, oh, you entitled pains yeah. in the ass. Yes. It's like single-handedly bringing you musical culture and you're complaining about it. But it <laughs> was fun. They don't was, want culture. They just want to be left alone in their <laughs> upper-middle-class upper you know, conclave. Indeed, yeah. So we, so, but the good news is, is that we did it for a few months before they shut us, had us shut down. And uh, the band is incredible. It's uh, Katice Buckingham oh, man. Uh, on flute and saxophones and uh, rhyming yeah. and percussion. For, then, for those who don't know Catisse Buckingham, he he played the flute track on <laughs> on the Ron Burgundy jazz flute sequence. Um, but he's he's also just an unbelievable sax player, alto and tenor, and an unbelievable MC beatboxer rapper. Just a Renaissance man. Okay, so continue. Yeah, and just uh, as a short aside, uh, as Catisse is Ron Burgundy's flute voice, uh, I played the drum solo at the fucking Catalina wine mixer. <laughs> In Step Brothers, that was uh, that's, that's that's my biggest musical accomplishment of all time. Oh. So when you when you see those hairy arms going back and forth that aren't uh, John C. Riley's, those are mine. So <laughs> anyway, I digress. So um, Blanco Diablo is Catisse, uh, Matt Rohde, who plays in Jane's Addiction and many other bands. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Um, and the great Joey DeLeon on percussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when Joey can't make it, because he's often on the road with Pancho Sanchez, Christian Moraga does it. And uh, my buddy Dave Goodwin, great bass player, great friend, mm-hmm. uh, plays bass. And myself on uh, you know percussion, drums and vocals. And it's primarily Latin-based stuff, obviously, by the name. Uh, you can uh, figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> but we do play uh, a wide variety of stuff, but it's, it's mostly, mostly Cuban, uh, Puerto Rican stuff some Afrobeat, uh, yeah and then a lot of i've been incorporating more and more electronics which is again my very sch- cool schizophrenic self it's like every possible genre at all times right right <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so uh, that's uh we've been since we since we stopped doing that local gig we've been uh playing at kanya downtown in la and mm-hmm. uh we're gonna try to book some other stuff but um, very excited about that and uh, doing this trio record with Doug Webb and Brian Charette next week. Mm-hmm. Um, just got done playing percussion on a record. My friend Kevin Koska, a uh, great composer. He's basically, I always tell people he's the heir to John Williams' throne. And, uh, <laughs> he's incredible. The guy can write music on the level that I've not heard many people under 60 years, years old. Yeah. And just going going back for a second, Brian Charette sure. is a, a New York-based B3 yeah. organist, um, and his, his name came up when I uh, interviewed Nick Mancini a few episodes ago. You and Nick and Brian did a great trio record together a couple of years ago called Impulse. Um, fun. So yeah, people people should definitely check that out, and uh, whatever else Brian's got coming up. 
Brian's incredible. Um, you know, when people ask Joey DeFrancesco, who is favorite Oregon player, he typically says Brian Sherratt. Yep. So doesn't really get any higher on the praise train than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to be fun. And um, any the, the reason I was bringing up my buddy Kevin is that he just did a big band record um, that I played percussion on uh, and Harvey Mason played drums on. Oh, right. I saw you uh, were posting some videos from the studio of that. Man, that's so cool. It was, yeah. I mean, just seeing Harvey track was, you know, it, I can't, I don't, I, don't, I was in awe of the, the whole time. And, and then he's the nicest guy in the world and he's the coolest guy. And I'm like, dude, tell me about the session with Jocko for him and what was it like? And he's like, all right, kid, beat it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, was, he was sweet. He answered every question. It sounds great, man. The, the number of, of things that uh, you've got your hands in and, and the variety that, that you get to kind of work across, I think, is, is the envy of many drummers and should be. There you go. Thanks to my buddy Andy Sinisi for sharing his thoughts and experiences with us. Next time you're out at a bar, ask the bartender to make you a Negroni. If they don't know what it is, go to a different bar, because they should. Once again, check out next week's episode. We're calling it The Black Drummers of Nashville. Matthew Krause leads a roundtable discussion with Keo Stroud, Marcus Finney, Hubert Payne, Derek Phillips, and Jeremy Robertson. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance and his constant patience in helping... Matt and I work these computer machines. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.